I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We are back in the book of Mark, and we are going to be looking today at Mark 1, verses 21 through 28. And um, I'm going to start by having Alan put this into context. And remember, this is where we have Jesus teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. So um, a, a story we all know, um, but we, we want to put this into some context about the importance of this, uh, of this passage. So here we go. All right. Well, um, you know, it's interesting to me, I think, that um, Mark, along with the other gospel writers, uh, presents Jesus as a Torah-observant person. Um, He is not lax in any way about observing the law, and and it's indicated here by the fact that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day for worship. And the Synoptic Gospels pretty much report that much of Jesus' ministry, especially in Galilee, occurred as he was teaching in the synagogues. Um, And in fact, when Luke introduces the episode at the synagogue in Nazareth, he says that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. So this is an interesting uh, point that all the gospel writers make about Jesus as an observant, uh, a Torah observant person. And, and that's really interesting. I think it's important for us to remember that too, because I think sometimes we tend to look at Jesus as a rebel, maybe outside mm-hmm. the church, but this is someone who is here fulfilling the law and yes, participating in the, the faith. So it's, that's an important observation. Um, one of the big, um, messages that we get from this is that Jesus had authority. And so um, just tell us a little about that and, and, and also how, how this is expressed in the Greek. Yeah, all the Gospels stress Jesus' authority. And the word in Greek is exousia, and it can convey implications of both authority and power. Um, And, uh, you know, I was talking last week about the something special that's in Mark's gospel that people notice about Jesus. Well, I was saving saving it for this week because this is this is where we find this. I mean, uh, the Jesus exousia is something that is noticeable, especially in Mark and Matthew. And um, in the Gospels, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and we find that in Mark 2 uh, and also in, in, in Matthew and Luke. He has the, the authority to command the unclean spirits, as he does here in this passage, as well as in many other places. Uh, he has the authority to execute judgment, which is an inter- interesting um, uh, affirmation that we find in John 5:27. And of course, in the final scene in Matthew's gospel, Jesus announces to his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, which is quite a claim. You know, as, as we're talking about this and you're pointing out the the really the the breadth of this word and i'm thinking of my you know ecstasy is a, a first year greek word and i'm thinking of my flashcard and my flashcard doesn't really have um the kind of power that the word actually holds for us and so um i, I don't know i i, I mean I, I think you did a good job of pointing that out to us here but i i wanted to emphasize that again that this isn't this isn't your flashcard authority no no <laughs> Jesus, Jesus' ministry takes place with authority. We'll, 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 we'll flesh that out a little bit fuller okay. later on. Okay. And when he's in there, of course, it's the scribes that recognized he's teaching with 
authority. And who, who are these scribes? Well, actually, it's the audience at the synagogue who recognize that he's teaching with authority. And, and both Matthew and Mark report um, in, in this episode of the synagogue at Capernaum that he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes, which the, the scribes would have been the ones who were the normal teachers in the synagogues. They were the scripture scholars of that day. Um, they were viewed as experts, particularly on the interpretation and teaching of the Torah or the law. And so the fact that Jesus was perceived to teach with authority by the audience could be interpreted in a couple of ways. First, um, the way in which, just actually the manner in which the religious teachers of that day taught was by citing previous rabbinic opinions on a topic. And if they gave an opinion, if they gave their own opinion at all, they would only give it after they cited what Rabbi so-and-so said and Rabbi such-and-such said. You know, they'd give a whole list of authorities. And you see this reflected, actually, in the Mishnah and in the Talmud. That's what it is. It's a collection of rabbinic opinions about uh, the interpretation of the Torah. Now, uh, um, if we compare the Sermon on the Mount as an example of Jesus' teaching, then what we see there is we find Jesus citing the Torah and then just simply offering his own interpretation, mm -hmm. which was would have been startling um, in that day and time. And and he simply would say, "Truly, I say to you." That's all. Mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. he, you know, he would he would quote the the Torah. You know, you've heard it said, "You shall not kill," but I say to you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. And, right. And so, and he he places his own teaching essentially on the same level with the Torah. And, you know, the crowds seemingly responded in a positive way to this style of teaching, but it was very likely a point of stumbling and a point of conflict for the religious teachers like the Pharisees and the scribes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, and this may be going too far, but I'm thinking about this authority today. And then last week we were also talking about that, whatever that stuff is that Jesus had, that people followed him. And I'm thinking this authority also kind of kind of reflects that I and think somebody so. that could stand up and say this um, and that we would record this in in our in our narrative as authority not mm -hmm. as he was trying to rock the boat he mm -hmm. was they didn't they didn't know they were it sounds to me like it was authority it was probably a tripping point and yet they were probably a bit in awe I well mean, I you know I don't it's hard to say how all of the Pharisees and the scribes yeah, re responded to him because, you know, we only have the negative responses. I'm sure there were some who probably were in awe, but we do know how the audiences, mm -hmm. the, the normal mm -hmm. crowds at the synagogues responded, and that was with awe and amazement. They were blown right, away by, right. his, by his teaching. And, but they didn't uh, kick him out. I mean, we don't mm -hmm. have evidence that they didn't allow him to teach. Well, not on this. Well, not on this. Not here. Not at well, this point. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm jumping too far ahead. But that we ha continue to have him teaching. He does. In he the continues to teach. He continues in to get up. Yeah. Um, I think also tells us something that he is still, mm -hmm. you know, part of the uh, part of the people. Well, remember, the, I mean, the this the, this word authority is placed on the lips of the people. Mm -hmm. They say. You know, right. he teaches as one having authority, not as the scribes. Right. So, that's, that's important because yeah. I think we tend to read this as, read back into it, for example, that we acknowledge that he had authority, but this is placed at this time by those listening to him, or at least the, yes. some of the people. It's placed on the lips mm -hmm. of the audience. That's, yeah. that's a good point. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the the, the I do think that one of the key concepts in Mark's gospel is that that special something that people perceived in Jesus was his authority slash power. Mm 
Okay. And we'll we'll fill that out a little bit fuller okay. in, in a bit. Um, one of the, you know, this is attached to then this whole thing with this demon. And um, how how does this role with the demon reflect Jesus' authority? What, what's going on here? Well, I think what you see in, in all the Gospels is that Jesus' teaching with authority was backed up by his actions. So, for example, in the case where he's forgiving, he claims the authority to forgive sins. He forgives a man who was paralyzed and brought before him. And, of course, the Jewish religious leaders are scoffing at him for this. And he says, oh, really? Well, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. You know, yeah, and he does. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. He, he's able to back up his, his words with actions. Now, I... I have adopted a convention myself. I don't speak of these uh, situations as demoniacs because that presumes something about it. So I, the language that's used in the text is that it's an, uh, you know, he was, he's said to have expelled an unclean spirit mm -hmm. from, from this man who was in the synagogue. And I think I find it important, especially in our day and time, to stick with that language because calling it saying that this was a demon that was possessing this man it it assumes a an ancient um worldview that you know in our day and time may or may not be one that we want to assume you know uh we don't know whether these folks were truly possessed by some spirit we don't know whether they were struggling with some sort of um seizure or disorder or we don't know if it was some kind of psychological thing we don't know but in that world they saw it as demo as as being possessed by demons and so you know i, I accept that but but as a modern person i prefer to use the language that the text uses and just stick with saying that he expelled an unclean spirit from this man who was in the synagogue. I was kind of curious and I um, about how this has been translated over over the years. Is it always been unclean spirit or ha are there are the people that have pulled in this demon concept and I wonder why I wonder why and that might be something we can talk about. Well, I think the unclean spirits in that day were like I said mm -hmm. in, in that day they were assumed to be de demons. Right. Um, and so I mean it that's not a totally outlandish thing to say because that's what they were assuming um and and in some cases it they're they're named to be demons you know and and yet like i said it's it's just sort of a move that i make to to sort of uh do i guess pay homage to the fact that we as modern people don't necessarily endorse that worldview and Absolutely. and and i don't think that's what this passage was intended to teach it I wasn't agree. intended to endorse that sort of worldview that was just a worldview that people took for granted in right day. absolutely yeah. yeah 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 although and the reason i pull this out is i think because that language has come down to us sure um that people at least some people it's very it's a most stumbling folks point assume most and, folks assume it yeah, and yeah, they they assume it, and yet for some, you know, like I taught this passage with some college students, and they were really kind of caught up on this whole idea mm -hmm. of demons, and it, it, for them, it was it 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 was a stumbling point for for the Bible speaking to them today. So sure. we really did have to pull it apart and talk about uh, and talk about the worldview of that time and and how the Bible is reflective of that time, yeah. and then how we might understand that today. So this is important yeah. and i don't i want to make sure as pastors we don't 
we're at least aware that that other language is still out there and, mm -hmm. and still tripping people up sometimes, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And, and at the same time, we don't want to just throw this out and discount it. Because this is an this this plays an important role in the gospel. Yeah, right? and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, um, the, the fact of the matter is, um, the idea of unclean spirits was a common one mm -hmm. in Jesus' day. The idea of demon possession was a common one mm -hmm. in Jesus' day, and exorcists were dime a dozen. Mm -hmm. Um, but in my opinion, the reason why the gospel, one of the reasons why the gospels emphasize Jesus' power over these unclean spirits or demons or whatever mm -hmm. you will is because they were kind of the most powerful adversaries yeah. that anyone could imagine. This may have been what kind of got under the skin of your, your college students. It's like, if, are, these, are, the, are there these evil spirits out there that can afflict us? <laughs> and, and they, you know, so these unclean spirits represented the power of evil in the world. And it seemed to many that its power was unstoppable. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. most people basically saw themselves as defenseless and helpless. They might have turned to magic to try to defend themselves Absolutely. against that. Absolutely, but yeah. they just really felt kind of um, at the mercy of these uh, evil powers right, in the world. Right, right, right. And of course, that's before we have any any modern understanding, right, of, right. of, of psychology. And we can talk about that later, too. And um, any type of mental illness really wasn't understood. I mean, this right. fits into that. Right. Um, so interestingly enough, I think about this is these unclean spirits are the ones that recognize Jesus. <laughs> and now remember, the Gospel of Mark is the one where, you know, it's all about who am I? Um, don't tell people who I am if you know. And so why why are these people recognizing him when when very often his own disciples don't recognize him? That's a good question. And and it's it's I think it's kind of an irony in 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 the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark especially, in that, you know, the disciples don't get it, but but the demons, you know, the unclean spirits, they get it. They know who Jesus is, and they they recognize him right away. Um, uh, and they feared him. They recognized his authority slash power, and they feared him. And so, for example, in this place, the man says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <laughs> so, you know, obviously, um, 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 this unclean spirit speaking through this man, whatever, whatever that may, the reality may have been, is afraid of Jesus and mm -hmm. recognizes Jesus as a threat. Uh, and so um, it, it's kind of ironic that, that the, the disciples, even the disciples don't get who Jesus yeah. is, but these, these unclean spirits do. Now, um, it's interesting in this, in this, um, in this passage, what, what the man says to Jesus is literally what to us and to you in the Greek. If mm -hmm. you're translating from the Greek, you're going to find that. And it's a highly idiomatic phrase translated rather literally into Greek from the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. And a better translation might be leave us alone, mm -hmm. which the net Bible has. Actually, the original King James Version got this one pretty good. They, they translated it, let us alone. Right. Or why are you bothering us in the New Living Translation? So that's, that's probably a good mm -hmm. reflection of, mm -hmm. the, of the, the sort of a situation of conflict here that's being set up just by Jesus being present. Yeah, so interesting. It, and something might be said of, uh, you know, the one, who, the one who's furthest away from, from Jesus, the one first to recognize, you know, like, you yeah. know, your, you know, your enemy kind of, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. Um, 
So why, you know, why did Jesus rebuke them? Why not let them identify him? Why not let every them be the ones to say in front of everyone, give them the credit for mm-hmm. it? I, I, because I think that Jesus did not want his identity to be based on the word of those who were possessed by unclean spirits. I mean, you talk about the credibility of a witness, you know, that's, you know, I mean, that would open up all kinds of, of mm-hmm. un, you know, doors that, that he probably didn't want to be opened up. Um, but, but, you know, it's, 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 it is a typical thing that uh, these individuals who are possessed by unclean spirits in the Gospels do recognize Jesus as the Holy One of God or as the Son of God. And this is, a, this is apparently a common thing. This happens, uh, Mark says uh, in Mark 3.11, Wherever, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, you are the son of God. So this seems to summarize more than one incident. And so this was something that, that, that occurred mm-hmm. on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So let me ask how this passage relates to Mark's writing about the kingdom of God. Well, I think that here we see what distinguishes Jesus from others. And here we see that special something about Jesus that people noticed. He ministers with authority by bringing the kingdom of God near. And we see this in two ways. Um, so as he, as he deals with this, um, this unclean spirit, uh, unlike other so-called exorcists of the day, Jesus did not resort to elaborate rituals to compel the unclean spirits to leave. Now, we have, we actually have some papyri that record some of these rituals. And if you were to read them, they're, they're almost mm-hmm. ludicrous. Yeah. It reminds me of, of the um, confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Mm-hmm. You know, they go into all this frenzy right. to try to affect a cure. And, and obviously, you know they're they're charlatans. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a show. It's yes. it's a show. It's like a magic show. It is. Yeah, it it's, is. it's interesting that Jesus intentionally. Is not yeah, doing and Je- that. Jesus doesn't do it that way. As in our text for today, Jesus simply spoke the command and they left. And here it's be silent, come out of him, or perhaps actually more, more literally shut up and come out of him. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, Jesus mm-hmm. was not polite. To this exactly <laughs> exactly and so um you know we see jesus ministering with the authority of the kingdom in that he can just speak the word and you know he he is able to command them and they leave but also i think one of the things that's interesting about some of the stories where jesus expels unclean spirits is that they often conclude with a description of the person fully restored to health and uh wholeness of mind and so Jesus, in other words, was actually able to succeed in setting them free from whatever it was that would have, was, was afflicting them. And that's not specifically the case here, but we do have the description of the unclean spirit leaving in verse 26. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think the implication is that this person would have been restored to wholeness. Yeah. The implications of that are, are, are really big because... It, it, it reflects back onto this idea of Jesus's authority and power. And it gets us back into this situation of Jesus doesn't just say it's all of he, what he does, all of it's accompanied with action. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know. I thought maybe you could talk a little bit more than about this authority and power sure. aligned with action. Sure. Well, and, and this is, this is where we see, this is where the attention that the gospels pay to 
Jesus' ability to cast out these unclean spirits, as well as, his, as the focus on Jesus' miracles, is, comes into play. And it was intentional on their parts. Now, I know that both of these aspects of Jesus' ministry may or may not be palatable to us today. You know, Thomas Jefferson famously or infamously, you know, put out an edition of the Gospels where he took out everything miraculous, everything right, supernatural, right. because he wanted to focus simply on the teachings of Jesus. Well, you can't do that because they're, integra- they're, they're integrally uh, intertwined, mm-hmm. you know, they're integrally right. related. And um, um, the idea then is that when the gospel writers focus on Jesus' ability to cast out these unclean spirits or they focus on his ability to uh, work miracles of healing, uh, these are signs that demonstrate the presence of the kingdom. As we saw mm-hmm. last week, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus himself says, if mm-hmm. I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then mm-hmm. the kingdom of God has come upon you. Mm-hmm. And so they're signs of the presence of the kingdom. And they were meant to show, I think, that when God's kingdom is brought near by the one, Jesus, who has been chosen to inaugurate its authority or power, mm-hmm. then the powers of domination and death must retreat. Right. And, and so there is this sort of conflict running throughout the Gospels between, between uh, Jesus and the powers of domination of death, we might call them, Jesus and the unclean spirits, mm-hmm. Jesus and illnesses, uh, G- you know, Jesus and leprosy we're going to see later on in Mark's right. Gospel. Right. And, and um, Jesus is the one who is chosen to, to minister with the authority or power of God's kingdom, and by doing so, mm-hmm. he brings the kingdom into the lives of the ones that he um, serves and ministers to. Mm. Wow. Um, when, you really, when you really understand what we just went through, wow, that's, that's my response, and I hope you have that similar response. I do, th- I do think the modern world has a still gonna, a lot, a lot of questioning about sure. about the nature of uh, if, if indeed, in this ability to cast off unclean spirits, it's is still in the modern world going to be really frustrating for for modern thinkers. And sure, that, um, we just don't buy into that, and so I'm wondering if there's a way that we help modern thinkers think about this. Well, that's why I use the phrase "the powers of dominion of domination and death." Because that, that's kind of a more, um, uh, that's an interpretive framework. Mm-hmm. You know, we can speak of, of whatever was afflicting these people who were said to have unclean spirits as the powers of domination and death. Or we can speak of uh, those who were, who were suffering from illness as the powers of domination mm-hmm. and death. And so in, in the way I view it is that, that God's, you know, God's kingdom overcomes these powers of domination and death and Jesus as the one who has the authority and the power to bring God's kingdom into mm-hmm. contact mm-hmm. with with people's lives he he brings the kingdom near and the powers of domination and death must retreat mm-hmm. and maybe maybe that might be a framework that would be a little more um helpful to some modern folks who have trouble with the seemingly supernatural aspects. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. And then if I put it into context of like my world and you see these people that undergo these very horrible events in their lives, evil, um, yes. present. We still, I mean, these are the powers of evil e- and we still have evil in this world. Absolutely. We may not ascribe it to a supernatural figure or figures like uh, Satan or demons, but, but uh, there still exists. is the power it's of evil still in this there. world. Yeah. 
and and you and, you know often if you, if you know that person um whose faith is so deep they seem to be able to walk through that um with such a great deal of grace and still hope that that others are not necessarily able to do and i think that's a big that's a big this. part and and this is another reason why i won't give up the g and kingdom because it's it's exactly. not just about uh, uh how friendly we are it's not just about <laughs> my buddy a, uh, a creating a community it's yeah. also a, it extends beyond the community to those who are afflicted by these powers yeah. of evil yeah. these powers of domination and death and and the kingdom you know the kingdom there's no contest between the kingdom of god and the and the right. and the powers right. of domination and King, death in the kingdom world. doesn't have that authority kingdom lacks authority it doesn't yeah. have the same sense of power and authority exactly that's right yep yep yeah. awesome well thank you we're going to come back and talk a little bit about our our reformers all right thank you We're back, and uh, we're going to have a conversation with Christy about how the Reformers read this passage. And so I'm wondering, Christy, how did the Reformers view Jesus' authority to teach and proclaim his message in light of this passage? Sure. Now, I we're going to, going to talk about Mark, and in terms of they don't spend a lot, lot of time talking about Mark. Um, and so with that in mind, we're putting it into the context of this this kind of lumped together um, gospel that we sure. have seen Calvin do. But well, and that doesn't surprise me because, I mean, from, from earliest times, even going back to the earliest times of the church, Mark was seen as a defective gospel mm-hmm. because it, it didn't have, it was incomplete. Right, it was incomplete. So they mm-hmm. tend to go other spaces. But Calvin does talk about it. And authority is, is huge in this because... Jesus is recognized as the one who has authority in the synagogue. And so in Calvin's world, that is just a model then for who we are as disciples and following in and preaching. You know, if, if Jesus is present and he's truly authoritative, it is in the Godhead that he is truly authoritative uh. and that the Holy Spirit then is coming through him, if you will, and that people recognize that. And um, it's it's likening to, um, if you're a Presbyterian pastor, you know we're always encouraged to be giving a, um, a prayer before we preach, you know, um, you know, God help me say the news that you want me to say to yes. everybody. A reminder that, that we are just agents of God, God's, purpose um not that we are doing this out of our own yeah the the i think the uh, i think the standard one is uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my my heart heart be acceptable acceptable to you my redeemer yes Yes, you all know that you you've heard somebody somebody um pray that prayer before they preach and um that absolutely though is part of this concept that that calvin would have and with the authority um I think an interesting aside to this as well is um, that this is the living word of God that he's speaking. And so that he is speaking differently, that he's not, you know, recounting all these rabbis things is, is, is part of that authority. And of course, in true Reformation fashion, 
he would take the Roman Catholic Church and claim, and that's an example of the dead word today. Mm. That's what it looks like. So it's like it's a rekindling of what happened way back then with the dead word of the scribes um, and the folks at the synagogue, the dead word of the Roman Catholic Church. They, yeah. they, they've missed the point. They're no longer speaking with authority. They're no longer speaking with the Holy Spirit. Well, and you know, if I find it interesting because tradition is as authoritative in the Roman Catholic Church as Scripture, if not more so. And so you do find a pattern of citing church fathers. Exactly. As a way of, even today in papal encyclicals, you know, you find right, them citing right. previous statements, right. you know, to, to support their, their um, ideas. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and yet, uh, and I, I understand what, what Calvin is saying, and yet I see that as a, a valuable resource in trying to help us uh, understand where we got to where we are today. Well, you, you know, have to remember, that. though. I mean, Calvin is not not disassociated with uh, with the earlier church fathers. Yes, I mean, a yes. lot of Calvin's based off of Augustine. Sure. And so, I, I don't think that is the case at all. But I think he is saying, look, when when these things have gone off scripture so far within mm -hmm. his perception, that that mm -hmm. is the dead teaching. That is not the living word of God working in with people today. And so I think we get into this this living word of God concept of how is the scripture working today? It's part yeah. of that. Um, it's part of that movement. Um, instead of kind of going back and sitting in in an empty space, a church that's not responding to yeah, the um, modern day. When I used to teach the biblical hermeneutics course, I remember one of the phrases was that the medieval medieval biblical interpretation was based on what was believed everywhere by everyone at all times or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> well, and that I mean, that doesn't seem to jive with the whole idea of a living word. That seems to be more right. of, a, of, a, of a tradition that was perhaps stagnant. Yeah. Yeah, and yet I would say modern scholars have since moved from there. Obviously, sure. you've got people, you know, gosh, Thomas scholarship. He's trying to make sense of the whole scripture with the whole Greek tradition for what he had yes. anyway, um, which is quite an intellectual undertaking. But perhaps that's it. It's the, the intellectual undertaking becomes more important than the living scripture. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I... Uh, yeah, I, there there are things going on, but the, it, perhaps it's the wrong questions. Mm -hmm. I think would be, you know, Calvin's responding as a second generation reformer, as somebody who is embroiled with these ideas of humanism and 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 what is the the purpose of of, of humanity. Um, and how is humanity coming to us through the scripture as opposed to some of the more kind of esoteric concepts that were revolving around medieval theology, you know, sure. like we really care. How many angels can dance, dance on, on the, the head, head of, of a, a pen? That's the most famous <laughs> one out there, right? And, you know, with angels have mass. And while these are interesting concepts, they don't ultimately um, talk about God who sent Jesus um, for humanity, sure. right? sure. So, um, you know, in this passage, we have this, um, this interaction between Jesus and the man with the unclean spirit, and, and Jesus is able to cast out the unclean spirits, as we mentioned in this first segment. What significance, if any, did the Reformers ascribe to that? Well, like the ancient world that this was in, the medieval world, or the, the early modern world, I mean, 
I, I even said medieval kind of stripping. There's still this medieval concept that there's unclean spirits out there. They don't have a modern idea of any type of, of mental illness or um, any type of imbalance, like chemical imbalance that we might do in modern age. You're going to see people out there and they're going to ascribe um, schizophrenia, things like that, to demons or unclean right. spirits. So it's in, in that respect, this era is still... Um, still in that same kind of mindset about about people that aren't acting bizarrely, if you will. Um, but so I think what becomes, I mean, so for them, it's very real that Jesus can, you know, cast out these spirits. I think their bigger question is, where do these spirits come from? What is the what is the cause of that? Whereas today, in modern folks, we might say, well, this is this is a result of of natural uh, natural problems, these natural imbalances, etc. Back then, it would have been, this is evil, and this is a manifestation of evil. And so it drew me a little bit to, to look at um, theodicy and the reformers. And I will tell you, I, I think we, we place a lot into what we think um, is their theodicy when they actually have not developed mature doctrines about theodicy at all. That does not come until we hit the Enlightenment. Mm. So um, we get inklings of it and we can trace it through different reformers and and spaces where they they talk about evil but nobody ever comes out and says this is where evil comes comes from so you constantly see um this reflection of satan and satan in a way is alive but then you can dig a little further and try to figure out who is satan and that is an interesting piece because it is not it's not fully dualistic like you might think, um, you know, an evil force coming from Satan and a God's force, because there is an, I, there is kind of an overall, at least with your magisterial reformers, understanding that God is, God is sovereign. And so you can't have this separate force, evil right. coming up. And so that always takes precedence. So then it's still, well, is Satan a fallen angel? Is... Um, Satan um, is this evil um, emanating simply by free will, which is kind of an Augustinian concept. Um, is evil simply just the state of humanity after the fall? And these are the questions that become important to our reformers. And they hit a lot of places in and in and between and over and above and <laughs> everything else. <laughs> I think what's really, really interesting is because they don't develop a full theology of theodicy, that you just kind of, um, you get mixed, kind of a mixed bag mm. of, what they, uh, uh, of what, they, what they say. So, for example, Calvin would tell you um, that providence is there and in, that ultimately this evil is embodied in providence as so it might tend one to go so far as to say well then calvin's the, calvin would say god's the architect of evil which he would not say and so that's the problem it's almost contradictory mm, yeah. but uh, <laughs> um saying no because providence ultimately god will win and overcome evil yes. So yes. it's and I, I pulled out this quote from the institutes just to give you an idea about how unclear this is and yet the the reason i want to do this is you could take you can jump a hundred years later 
and there's going to be some really clear ideas about predestination and pre and, and and likewise whether you're saved or damned which i don't think is fair to calvin at this point and so listen to what he says he says thus the soul in some strange and evil way is held under this kind of voluntary yet sadly free necessity, both bond and free, bond in respect of necessity, free in respect of will. And what is still more strange and still more miserable is the guilty becomes free and enslaved becomes guilty and therefore enslaved becomes free. So you've got this tangled web of are you free or are you bound? Yeah. Are you free yeah. or are you bound? And that's what's hard. So in some way, shape, or form, and I think it's in our consciousness, we are free and yet got to choose, kind of like Augustine, good or evil, and yet there's this broader kind of oversight of God that ultimately will win for good. Mm -hmm. um, but you can see some of the challenges sure. with this. And, and so I think, anyway, if we head back to our scripture with this, um, I think what's where this becomes particularly important is when we look at the scripture, we see that victory of Christ over the unclean spirits. And I think that's, while we can go through all of this baggage behind it, it that is it, pulling out that authority of Christ, that is reflected in this passage and that, that ultimate victory over death. Sure. So um, anyway, I pulled out a lot of those things and believe me, it kind of rolls everywhere. But um, I guess my, my thought is here, some of the ideas that then will move into like Karl Barth, who comes and really gives us a more sophisticated uh, theodicy in a modern age, you can't, you can't place back on these people. You have to kind of look at them as, kind of in between medieval and modern folks. They're starting to ask the questions, but no one's going so far as to, to really write through and think through the answers. Even Calvin, even as thorough as Calvin is, does not fully get there. Well, and it makes sense because, you know, the kinds of questions that really drove uh, theodicy were the questions that came up with the Enlightenment. Exactly. And they weren't quite there yet. They weren't yeah. there yet. And, and, you know, one of the things, too, that I think is important to point out with early modern people is God exists. There is never a concept of mm. atheism. I suppose if we found some really off-the-wall writers, we might get some inkling and draw that into it. But overall, there is this overall overall understanding that God is the architect of the world. That's the unquestioned premise unquestioned with which premise. everything begins. Exactly, yeah. which is not you know, we call this an early modern period. It's not fully modern. And it, that's one of the big hallmarks of our modern era. And one of the hallmarks that we come to the scripture today, if we're not, if we're learning something from this, you can see some of the baggage by which baggage or understanding that these early modern people came to scripture and what they had already assumed um, as just being a, a truth. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, that makes a lot of sense that they would have just simply taken the biblical worldview and assumed it as, as factual, and they wouldn't have questioned, you know, miracles. They wouldn't have questioned um, demons or unclean spirits. They wouldn't have questioned any of that. You mentioned a little bit that, um, that when, when Calvin understood um, that Jesus' teaching with authority uh, it was by the Holy Spirit that Jesus was able to do this. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the role of the Holy Spirit in in all in in all of this. Well, I mean, the Holy Spirit is again. Um, 
it's central to Calvin's theology, right? It's it's central to the, this idea of of the body of Christ and working in this body of Christ, that the Holy Spirit is what is that glue that kind of guides us and together and holds it together and tells us how to work as a body. Um, without it, it's just dry. So um, obviously that's also part of the authority. That's, 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 by, that's that piece by which we understand how Jesus is coming to us, what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's that part that unites us all together, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at very much part of this, he didn't actually in this and when he discussed this particular pack, passage, he didn't sit there and spend a lot of time with the Holy Spirit. Um, in fact, he didn't spend much time on this passage at all. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's clearly there as this kind of um, undercurrent through the through this through his whole theology, if you will, and it's definitely here in in this in this passage is because it you know it's it's how we understand that authority sure. i mean it, it's what makes it from human authority to god's authority mm-hmm. does that make any sense yeah, sure, I mean, sure. yeah you can have the guy stand up there and he can preach and he can be tough and wow he's a great authority but it's that authority that the divine authority that calvin identifies that that's where the holy spirit is sure yeah well and that makes sense because um you know while matthew and mark focus on um Jesus' authority primarily um, uh, as uh, an expression of the fact that he is the one who is chosen to uh, bring the kingdom of God into people's lives. Um, Luke also has that same notion, but Luke also um, wants to say that Jesus is ministering in the power of the Spirit much more. Luke emphasizes that a, a, a bit more, and it probably plays in, comes in from the book of Acts as well, because there's a sense of the power of the Spirit at work in the church mm-hmm. um, in the book of Acts. So that makes a lot of sense that that Calvin would, would pick up on that, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, um, and yet you mentioned something which I, which I found interesting about how um, that sort of ties into us, you know, in terms of our preaching. Um, uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, just, um, you know, I think when we're, as, we're, we're called um, into the church, it, it, for those of us that, that truly feel called, there's this, this whole kind of overwhelming sense of that, how can I be a mouthpiece for, for God in any way, shape, or form? Um, and if you've had that experience, um, then you know when you get up there, you don't feel like you're really talking to yourself, that you feel more like you're an instrument. Um, and that's a big difference between that space than a space where you are simply writing a speech and you're, and you're saying something. And um, that probably happens quite a bit in the church. Um, and I think there's times when everybody has that, that sense of, uh, you know, it, you have to rewrite it. You have to rewrite what you have written because the first the first draft was you. Yeah. <laughs> the second draft, yeah. you felt that you were moved by the Holy Spirit, um, and it's you know it's that reminder if you you know in the seminary classes where they're like you should before you start doing your work you need to pray you need mm-hmm. to you need to um, concentrate on what God wants you to see in this passage. Um, you've got all your tools that you do, but then you also need to be listening for the Spirit, and they need to work together. Um, well, and it's a common yeah. thing. I think most pastors have experienced this, that, you know, you preach some sermons and it just seems like you have this just um, uh, dynamic connection with the congregation. And you preach other sermons and it seems like they just kind of, they 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 they, they go out from you to the, just, just beyond the edge of the pulpit and they fall flat. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. ironically, you know, sometimes 
when you preach some of the most, what you seem to be dynamic sermons, it, it may or may not be all that effective in the people's lives. And I've had the experience where I, you know, finished preaching a sermon and thought, oh man, that was just the worst. And someone said, you know, came up afterwards and talked about how much it meant to them. Yeah. Yeah. How much <laughs> so, that was what they needed to hear on that yeah, day. Exactly. Um, you know, and it, it reminds me, and I kind of probably jumping ahead to later, but, you know, we're in such dark times, right? We are still recording this in the middle of COVID, and uh, I'm sure you're still hearing it in the middle of the COVID-19 where, and, and really harsh political rhetoric and just a lot of uncertainty. And uh, I keep thinking about just as, as the words of scripture, um, the words of the promise, the words of Jesus' authority, and being able to preach those and have people hear the good news is is such brings so much hope um and i guess that's well that's what comes from from this passage for me i think it's i think it's easy to come to this passage and get kind of caught up in the in the weirdness of the unclean spirit and forget this is a man who heals this is a person who brings hope to someone who is desperately hope who's hopeless um somebody that is possessed by something else and has lost his whole personal identity um uh, think about that with someone you love. Um, sure. That's incredible. Sure. Yeah. It is indeed. All right. Well, thanks, Christy. Thank you. Hi, we are back. And we want to look a little bit about into this passage for kind of its implications for today. I mean, we've talked about already that we have... Um, unclean spirits and and the discussion of unclean spirits and Jesus um, curing someone of them brings about an idea of of magic even or 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 miracles and in the modern day we run across so many people that that are not in that space and um, as we were talking about this over our break, I was uh, reminding Alan I have uh, I taught at the University um, of Nebraska for about 15 to 20 years. So I'm a secular institution. A lot of my students are not Christian. Um, and they were even surprised that Jesus lived, you know, and when, when we are using, showing them, well, yes, actually, you know, Josephus and Tacitus and, you know, the letters between um, um, Pliny and Trajan and all of these different uh, pieces of historical evidence that attest to Jesus living. But to go from there to Jesus, our Savior, was yet another step. And a lot of these young people would come and they would look at a scripture like this and they would say, well, that's proof that Jesus doesn't exist because we don't believe in miracles. So I guess today I wanted to talk a little bit about understanding scripture within the context of its historical development and the people who first would have heard and understood Jesus in their time and how that then plays out to to today. So I'm going to let Alan talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, thanks, Christy. Um, the, um, you know, I think there are a number of levels that we can look at here. I mean, first of all, we, we recognize that um, although we would say Jesus was the Son of God, we don't know. We don't know to what extent he had divine, supernatural knowledge of all things in his incarnate uh, state. But um, he was a man of his day, and and he was dealing with people of the day, and and in that day and time. Um, 
it was, as we said before, it was presupposed that there were these powers, there were these these um, um, demonic spirits, if you will, that that oppressed people, and um, um, exorcists were common healers were common and they made it out like they were able to heal by various means Um, and so i think it's important for us to start there and recognize that we're dealing with ancient documents these are these are documents from the first century they're not from the 21st century exactly exactly and and and, and we, we start with that but i think also the other thing is that that i'm kind of sad that some modern readers might read this text and get hung up on that issue because that's not the point here. Exactly, that's not the point. And the, the point yeah. <laughs> here is the point here is to demonstrate uh, Jesus' twofold authority. He is able to teach with authority. Uh, he's with authority. He's able to proclaim the good news that in Him the kingdom of God has come near. But He's also able to enact exactly. the kingdom. He has exactly. the authority or the power to enact the kingdom. And when he does so, all the things that oppress people, all the things that, exactly. that, that, um, that render people hopeless, all of, these, all of these things that they fear have to flee. And, that, and, and that, that there is no, there is no contest between them. Jesus just banishes them, basically. Uh, exactly. <laughs> the word. And if you, and I think we're, talking mostly the pastors, but if you're talking to people on that other page and they can all of a sudden understand in this context, now they have hope. Now they have love. Now they understand agents of good working in the world. This is, this to me, instead of being a text that people might want to dismiss, um, a a faith should be one that helps them jump on that bandwagon. Um, But I think it's important that we preach it that way. I mean, Alan pointed out, we can get so caught up in, in the, the evil and so caught up with this supernatural, the, the supernatural thing, yeah. aspects of it. That it we, yeah, exactly. That we, that we miss out on what is this, this true message. That's the main passage. point. Yeah. The main point is that, is that Jesus truly is authorized to enact the kingdom and he does so. Mm-hmm. And, and not, he not only proclaims it, but he enacts it. In his, in his life and in his ministry. And when he does so, people are set free from the things exactly. that bind them. Exactly. And, you know, we, that might be a point of contact for us because we, we have a notion of freedom, although our notion of freedom is a bit stilted, you know, with rights and entitlement. Right. But um, there is this sense of freedom, the freedom of the kingdom that, that Jesus brings. And we see that, I think, in, in the supernatural, the miraculous, the exorcisms, the stories in, in the Gospels. Um, that that Jesus, wherever Jesus goes, he's able to set people free, and and that's one of the messages, you know, of of the servant of the Lord. You know, he has come to proclaim liberty for the captives, and and Jesus is enacting that in his ministry. Exactly, and that is that is huge. <laughs> now, at the same time, right. I also know that in our modern space. You know, there are some people who are bound by things that they will never probably in this life ever exactly. be truly free from. And and this is where I guess, I mean, you know, you mentioned theology, the Odyssey from Calvin. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. part of my take on, on evil is maybe a little bit similar to Calvin in that, yeah, there is still evil in the world. Yes, there are still people who are bound. There are faithful, devout Christians who are bound 
by all kinds of evil in this world, and they probably will never be set free from that in this lifetime. But I think part of my understanding of theodicy is that um, this triumph of the power of God's kingdom over all the other powers that bind people is something that happens ultimately. Right. And right. you know, and it always offers a hope, and that's a yes. huge space. Even if you're bound by evil, the hope of God can set you free. I mean, it really is a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. And, and and you know, for me, so for example, my younger brother um, was plagued by schizophrenia mm-hmm. all of his adult mm-hmm. life. He passed away about ten years ago, um, and um, he was plagued by schizophrenia. And you know, the thing about those kinds of personality disorders is that, to my knowledge, um, medical science can can prescribe um, a, perhaps a medication that might lessen the symptoms, right. but there's no cure right. for right. schizophrenia. Right. You know, and so it is a comfort to me, I mean, and, and this is a statement of faith and hope, but it is a comfort to me that my brother Douglas is in the presence of Christ where he has been set free from everything exactly. that bound him during exactly. his life. Exactly. And so, I mean, even though he didn't get to experience it in this life, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I, you know, I lived with the uh, burden of, of my brother suffering, right. watching his suffering, um, you know, now I do have the hope, and, and there is a kind of freedom uh, that he is whole in the presence of God. Yeah, yeah. And on in a similar note, my, my dad uh, had Alzheimer's. Yeah. And, you know, a, um, a, different, a different kind of disease. But yet at the end, as you watch somebody lose all of those memories and things that make them them, and if you... If you've walked with anyone with Alzheimer's, it's not just memories, but it's just in how people act and it, people can act very strangely and and up, in upsetting ways, actually. Well, um, their personality can change. And their personalities yeah. can change. And, you know, it was really interesting. My uh, 11-year-old at the time, he says, he says, Mommy, it, it's okay. God restores them when they, wow. when they come to heaven. Which and one was that? That was Kale. Oh, yeah. good for him. And I just thought that was so beautiful. And it was just the innocence of youth and that pure faith that uh, a youth that has. That is awesome. And it reminds me of this, you know? Yeah, isn't that cool? <laughs> oh, that is so beautiful. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, wow. you bet. Well, and, you know, I, again, I think this really is the gist of this passage. I do too. Is that um, we're meant to see Jesus as the one who has the authority slash power to enact God's kingdom. He also Mm -hmm. proclaims the good news that he is bringing the kingdom of God into people's lives. But he not only preaches it, he does it. You know, he affects that. And and to me, that's exciting because, um, you know, probably most of us live with some kind of of wound, some kind of wounding that we carry with us uh, all through life. And to some extent, we may or may not experience healing in this life. Mm-hmm. Maybe more or less, we might, if we if we are, are willing to put forth the work, we're able to find some deliverance from that in this life to some extent. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important that we recognize that, that you know, that this is not all there is, that there is a hope 
that when the kingdom of God comes, when the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, or as Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 10 says it, when it becomes true that now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, the exousia of his Christ, when that becomes the reality that defines all reality, then we can, we, I think, I believe fully, then all these ills yeah. will be banished. Then we will be set free from everything that wow. binds us, and we will be healed from all the wounds that trouble us now. Wow. Ah, that's a good sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, let's end with that. That's great. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word.